Hello and welcome to Career Move Secrets, a brand new podcast for active job seekers and the career minded. In each episode, I'll interview a special guest from my global network. Guests will include seasoned recruiters, experienced hiring managers from companies big and small, and successful individuals who have developed great careers through making great career moves. My aim is to uncover and share my guests' unique perspectives, their insights, and their insider advice on job searching, interviewing, and career enhancement. My name is Tony Talbot, and I've been working in the recruitment industry as an international headhunter for over 20 years. I'm the creator of CareerMoveSecrets.com, a step-by-step online course for job seekers that I designed to be the ultimate guide to getting hired in the hidden job market. I will add my perspective to the conversation and together with my guests, we hope to provide some genuine, actionable insider advice that will help you execute your next career move. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to episode seven of Career Move Secrets. And today's guest is Jim Coleman, who's the head of economics at WSP. Jim has had a long and illustrious career as an economist. Uh, He's lectured in the subject. He's gone on to work in consultancies, build consultancy teams uh, uh, very successfully. So he brings the perspective of a hiring manager, but he's also made a number of interesting career moves himself and one very recently. So he also brings the perspective of somebody as a job seeker. So I'm very interested in his views. Jim, how are you? I'm fine, Tony, and it's a pleasure to be here talking to you. It's good, isn't it? Good to, good to see your face. I was just saying, we, we've, we were just saying uh, that we've, we've spoken a lot, but we've never actually met. So this is our, this is our closest to an, an actual meeting that we've got is because we can see each other. Yes, that was great. It's an improvement on the usual. Call, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of which have been very pleasant, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah um, absolutely. And, and how how are you? Uh, how are you getting on in lockdown? What's what's going on in your uh, um, environment? Well, lockdown is okay. I mean, it's been quite a while now, so we're kind of used to it. And um, I'm quite used to working from home anyway. Um, so it's kind of okay. It's the um, I think if you've got a family, you're doing you know you work from home and you're inevitably directing the homeschooling mm. and everything else. So it's a bit of a juggling act. We've got a full house of um, everybody working hard um, during the day in the house, and um, then we just stay in the house. Lockdown, <laughs> 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 but it's okay. It's okay. I mean, it, you know, things can always be worse. Things can always be worse. So that's one thing I've learned in my career that even when you think things are going badly, they can always get worse. So you shouldn't complain. Find the positives. Find the positives. Yes, it's nice to be together as a family. So that's good. Yeah, there are there are definitely some benefits. And and when you with your background as a, a lecturer, I'm sure you've become an amazing uh, home tutor, <laughs> homeschooler. Um, I, I obviously know lots about your background, Jim. The listeners will not G- give me the potted history because it, it is an interesting background you have. Potted history, okay. I mean, it's been quite a long history. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, so I um, I I studied um, economics at university. I did a first degree in economics immediately followed by a master's degree and then immediately followed by um, a PhD. My mother thought I was never going to work. She was quite worried. And so I looked like an eternal student for a while. And then I kind of drifted without really thinking too much about it into academia. 
which is kind of what you do if you've spent that long at university and are still doing a PhD, you kind of become an academic. And I did that for five years. I was a lecturer in the economics department of Durham University. It was a great experience. I enjoyed um, teaching and I enjoyed the interaction with the, the students, but I wasn't, I wasn't really a researcher. I wasn't really someone who was going to stay in their room and do detailed, very specific research on things and try to get publications. So I then kind of also, without really thinking about it too much, drifted into consulting, into economic development consulting, because um, that's what I thought you did. If you did economics and you weren't a lecturer, you had to be a consultant. And that was the, um, there wasn't any, any further sophistication to my thinking at that stage. But luckily, I went to a very good company, which at that point was called PIDA Consulting. And if anybody knows the history of economic development and planning consulting in the UK, they might remember that name. It was a very well-established company. At the time that I joined, it was being acquired by DTZ which was a, an international real estate firm, which itself was subsequently acquired by Cushman & Wakefield. So it's all Cushman & Wakefield now. Well, I worked in the Manchester office of DTZ PIDA doing economic development um, related consulting. Um, it was the late 90s, early noughties. It was the heyday of urban regeneration policy and funding and all sorts of programs, the days of the RDAs. So there was a, it was a big industry really around local and regional economic development and urban regeneration. And it was a good place to learn um, these skills, actually. So um, an interesting experience. I was in the Manchester office. Then I went to the Dublin office of DTZ PIDA for a year because my wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, was living in Dublin. So I had to go there. And then left DTZ PIDA, went into another consultancy, went to a company called EDAW in London and I eventually led the economic development group in EDOM in London. EDOM became part of AECOM in the time that I was there. It basically became the planning and design part of, of AECOM. And um, another interesting experience, so DTZ um, was really real estate driven. So I was doing economic development in the context of real estate. In EDOR, AECOM was much more master planning design driven. So I, I learned a lot about the spatial aspects of, of economic development. And uh, then I made quite an interesting move. I think I went from a company that was getting very big very quickly because it was acquired and I went to a much smaller company called Regenerous, which was based in Manchester, run by people um, that I had worked with when I was at DTZ Pida. And I joined specifically to set up the London office of Regenerous Consulting, which was a great experience. Um, it was a bit scary in the first week or two because I was sitting at home at my desk thinking, what am I supposed to do now? I didn't, I didn't, you know, didn't there's no work to do. And I had to get the work and I had to build up the team, which I did um, by taking people who worked for me at EDOM into um, Regenerous, which is what you do. And we grew it from there. And it was a, a great experience going from having no profile in the market to, to being quite a, a substantial name in the market. Still a strong name, although that company in itself has now been acquired by an engineering company called Hatch. Every time I join a company, it seems to get acquired at some point. I don't think that will happen to my current employer, but you never know. You never know. 
was at Regenerus for five years. Um, and by that point, I had done a lot of UK-based economic development, economic strategy, and work around planning, work around real estate. And I had a very strong desire to do that kind of work, but internationally. So I joined um, Bureau Happold Engineering. I joined an entity called Happold Consulting, which was the consulting arm of Bureau Happold. It, it, it was later amalgamated into the main cities group of Bureau Happold. But that was that really took me kind of internationally, economic development, economic strategy, really um, around the economics of cities, the economics of places, economics of infrastructure, but mainly still some work in the UK, but a lot of it was international and in many different places, Middle East, Africa, Asia, Europe, particularly Northern and Eastern Europe. I was there for seven years almost. Um, I then did a couple of years in a company in Oxford called Oxford Policy Management, also very international and actually quite focused on the developing world, low-income countries in particular, a lot of work for the big aid funders. Did almost two years there and then joined WSP, um, similar to Bureau Happold, engineering-led, um, multidisciplinary, very, very large company, global, mm. huge company, in fact, closer, closer to AECOM, I guess, than anything else. Um, and I'm head of economics at WSP, and my remit there is to basically consolidate and um, expand WSB's economics practice, building on what is already done, and I guess bringing more of a strategic kind of overlay to, to what happens there. So very exciting, despite the strange conditions we're in right now, it's actually very, a very exciting position, very interesting. So that's the kind of potted history. It, it is a long and illustrious history, and you've obviously made some great career moves in terms of, you know, progressing into bigger companies or, or bigger groups, growing teams. I'm, you know, I'm interested. I'm always interested in my situation to, uh, to, to understand how these moves uh, occurred because, um, you know, some people have told me in the past, very few people that they've made these strategic moves. I, I tend to find, um, you know, it, it, a lot of it is, is reactive rather than proactive. Yeah. Have you, have you tended to apply for jobs or have people come looking for you? Um, it's a bit of both, actually, and I think um, I mean all, I think all of the moves I made in my career, I think I made them because it felt like it was it was the right time to move on to the next thing. I mean, I've been lucky enough not mm-hmm. to have had to move or not to have to have lost a job yet. Touch wood. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've always, I guess, I've been in the fortunate enough position that I could I could think about what I wanted to do next, and I think the first. The first three jobs I had, so at Durham University, then at DTZ Pida, and then EDOR, I remember applying for those jobs, and it was it was the traditional way in those days of the ad was in the newspaper, mm. and you you looked at the ad and then you responded, and sometimes you had to write off or call them for the application form, or you sent in your CV and covering letter. So I, I do remember seeing those. I think the DTZ pilot job was actually in the Economist, mm. and I'm pretty sure the other two were in the Guardian. Yep. And once upon a time, you used to get the Guardian on a Tuesday, I think it was, which was like public sector, government regeneration type jobs. Mm. And um, um, 
Uh, yes, I did, did kind of the standard application. Um, at the time that I was looking to leave EDOR, which was becoming um, ACOM, I mean, that was the first time I kind of, it happened through contacts, through a network. Mm. And I joined Regenerous, and Regenerous was basically run by very senior people that I'd worked with at DTZ Pida. I remained in contact with them. They were close friends as well as colleagues. And it just came out of our ongoing conversations. Mm. The same with the next move to Bureau Happold. It was it was contacts who knew people who knew me, knew what I could do, saw that that could fit with the way the organization was going. Um, and also it was this, the same with the move to WSP. The move to Oxford, Oxford Policy Management, came through um, a headhunter, mm. a specific headhunter, at, at a time when I was thinking about moving anyway but um i would say more i say the majority of those job moves were through the network through contacts and usually a, a combination of me thinking about okay what am i doing next and somebody else thinking oh he would be good here he can do that he can take us in that direction so that's kind of working together yeah, that's. I think that's very typical. How it used to work, you know, and I, I, I've been in recruitment long enough, twenty plus years now. It used to work that you you posted an ad in national press, and you you got it was called advertised selection, and you got you know two hundred people apply, and you 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 found out who were the best four or five people were to put forward, and 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 that was how it worked. Now it's it, it it's very different. I you know, yes jobs are still posted but i don't think that's how they get filled uh, that's not my experience yeah. anyway um they get filled through networks through headhunting and through um conversations that happen outside of that traditional apply yeah. uh, you know with your cv and covering letter uh situation and i think that the numbers bear that out if you you know the numbers across the uh the the industry and across the globe are that you know referrals is the biggest uh, is the biggest um, generator yeah. of jobs, if you like, over 40% of, of people are referred to a job by somebody that they know. The the, the jobs that are actually filled through um, things like job boards, it's it's quite a small number. It's it's less than 15%. Um, mm. You know, and, and if you do apply for a job, you've got, you know, you've got a 2% chance of actually getting put forward. You know, you're a 250 to one shot. Yeah, so it, it doesn't happen like that. It is interesting uh, that your your sort of experience bears that out. And I think the more senior you become, the more it's about your network um, and, and how you interact with that. With, with this, you know, you've having made a, a move relatively recently, uh, you know, for, for other job seekers out there, you know, at the senior end, what's been your experience what 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 would you suggest of the things that have worked for you in that in that uh, in that um, particular move i mean i think some of the kind of basic things i mean it's partly it's partly a, it's a numbers game to mm. certain extent the bigger your network and the bigger your number of contacts mm. the more likely you are to to get leads into things whether it's a personal thing about the position that you might get or whether it's in you know, a project if you do project work um, so you, you, just working on the network and extending it and expanding it. I mean, one of the other things that, that I do, which I forgot to mention in my little pot of history, I also teach at, at Westminster University. Mm. So I've managed to keep up my kind of academic um, my academic links. I'm a professor at Westminster and I teach um, undergraduates and postgraduate students, but mainly undergraduates at the moment. 
And when they're in their final year, I, the one thing I say to them is that after they've invested in their education, the most mm. important thing they're going to invest in is their network. And you mm. need to build up a network. And I say to them, the future job that you get will come through that network. The first job you get might be from the traditional. But later on, it's all about the network. So I think just the size of it, just the size and scale of the network. And I think the important things there are to spend time on it. So, you know, meeting, being in places and having opportunities to meet people and then to develop a relationship with them, to have, you know, something interesting to say to people and exchange information and to actually connect um, on both a professional and a personal level because that's how people are going to to um, to remember you and just um, just kind of being active in doing that and I think the other thing about that is um, and this is something else that I always advise my my young students is you're being seen as somebody who has an interest in that discipline yeah. or that area so you're going to the events um, you know you're you're participating in conversations you're attending conferences you're following you know the, the the thought leaders on Twitter or whatever it might be but you're just kind of actively involved in in the the subject area so that you are part of that conversation because I think that's that's also important to be seen to be somebody who has a view and who can help others understand that sector and can move things forward. And um, I think that's that's important. So the whole thing, everything that goes around with networking and the network and the relationships, um, absolutely vital. I mean, the other thing, you need to be good at your job as well, of course. <laughs> Ideally, yes. <laughs> you need to have a reputation for being able to do it, mm. as well as talk about and network a lot as well. I think that's really, really good advice. I, I'd agree with all of that. You know, you have to build your network, build, build a relevant network to you, you know, with people that have got a similar background or involved in a similar industry, uh, interact with them. It's amazing how that that builds momentum and it gets you, If you, you the more visible you are in your own sort of sphere of influence, the, the better. Um, and you will find that you reap, reap what you sow in terms of relationships that you develop and everything. Like that. It's a, 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 absolutely the case. And, and funny enough, these days, it's not all about um, your genuine network, as in people you've met because of LinkedIn. We're now in an age where you can interact and network with people that you have never met or may yeah. never even yeah. meet. You know, um, yeah. it, it is all very possible if if you interact in those ways and yeah. and invest in your your profile and your connections. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn's a great thing because it allows you to do, um, to build up the numbers, to have the contacts, but it also allows you to participate in the conversation, mm. in the debate. And I mean, it's just a, LinkedIn and Twitter for me are just great ways of keeping up to date with what people are saying about a particular subject. Yep. So my subject is economic development, urban regeneration, infrastructure. Mm. And the easiest way to find out you know, what, what's the latest research saying is just to follow people who are either doing it or um, engaged in it. So I think um, the, um, the mechanisms for networking, of course, are much more developed now and are much more efficient now. So it's, it's even easier to build up a network. But you need to have the mindset for it. You need to want to have contacts mm. and want to exchange ideas. And, um, and you know, some people do and some people don't, I think. 
Yeah, it's it's it, funny enough. I was just looking at the numbers the other day, and it, it it is it's very small. LinkedIn, I think, is the amount of people that post is quite small. It's less than it's, yeah. it's less than sort of five percent of people actually post. Um, so you know, people are there, but they're not active. You know, the more active you become, the more visible you become. And if you you know, you don't always have to have something incredible to say that's new. You have to ask some good questions, don't you? You know, like you know, like you would do in an interview scenario. You you ask. If you can ask some decent questions, you appear much, you know, much more clued in and intelligent than you do if you if you have nothing to ask. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You've done a fair bit of recruitment as well. For you've grown significant teams. Uh, you know, you you you've dealt with a lot of you know professional uh, guys who uh, at all levels uh, that you've brought into your team. What, what do you tend to look for when you're hiring, Jim? What do I look for? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I guess it depends what level. Quite almost, if I'm looking at the team as a whole, I'm usually looking for a bit of a mix, mm. a bit of a blend of different disciplines and different perspectives and different backgrounds. But I do, I did, I guess there's a kind of a basic kind of technical level of skill and whether it's kind of numerical or quantitative mm. skill on the one side, but also report writing communication skills on the other side. Mm. So it's a kind of skill element, but also the um, the work that I do, it's project-based, it's team-based. So I need people who are good in teams, basically, who relate to other people well. Mm. They're good interpersonal skills, you don't always find those. Yep. And, you know, you either need to be a team member who's relatively junior and can receive direction in the right way, or you're more senior and you're giving direction, you're giving mm. instruction. And also you need to be someone who can transition from one level to the other. So start junior and then become more senior. So the ability to fit in a team is important. And I think it's what's also important there, I think when you're a hiring manager, it's it's easy to default to building a team where you're thinking everybody needs to fit and by default, you end up with lots of people who are more or less the same. They kind of look and sound the same. Identical recruiting, home, yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of almost, I guess, there's a non-conscious bias thing going on there. But actually, the best teams, the more dynamic and the more creative teams, in my experience, are the ones that are very diverse mm. and on all kinds of levels, mm. whether it's about ethnic and cultural background or whether it's just about mindset, people who think differently. Which is why I think a, a blend of different disciplines is um, is important. But the other thing I think is very interesting is it's not just a technical skill; it's also a genuine interest in the subject mm. area. And again, this is something I tell my students. Um, you know, when you come out with your degree, first degree or master's degree, you basically look like every other student. Mm. You went to school and you've got a degree. Well, that's 99.9% of people who <laughs> have just left university, mm. basically. So what you need to communicate is a genuine interest in the subject. Mm. And I'm quite often teaching people who will become planners. They might become urban designers. They might go into architecture. They might become economic development people. And I was saying to them, what is the thing that really interests you and you are going to speak passionately about because that's what's going to mark you out from everyone else because everyone else has got the same CV, basically. Maybe you did something, maybe you did an internship at KP, fantastic. Just means your parents are well-connected, that's what that means. Um, but, you know, if you can talk about you know, urban regeneration, social inclusion, technology in urban areas, you know, how to alleviate poverty in developing countries or whatever it is, 
this is also something that's very attractive. It's people who can do the job technically. They can blend into the team and they're they're motivated to to sort out the problem, whatever it might be. This is this is also important for me, isn't it? Yeah, I understand that. I guess putting your economist hat on, I know you know you're you're, you're sort of uh, you're broadly across the the sort of urban regeneration uh, area, but as you know, in that sort of economic development space, you also look at things like employability and all sorts of things that are relating to the job market, don't you? What's yeah. your sense of of um, how we might bounce back from this uh, this economic crisis? Oh, that is uh, is a very good question, <clears throat> very good question, Tony. To which there is no um, true answer at the moment. Um, <clears throat> I think um, if you look at what was happening immediately prior to this, um, I mean, this was a, a fairly sudden shock. I mean, arguably we should have seen it coming, but it was a fairly sudden shock. Um, and prior to that, I mean, in the UK, despite everything, despite the uncertainty with Brexit and everything else. The kind of economic fundamentals were okay. They were okay. So we were kind of in a reasonably robust shape. Not not far from perfect, of course, as as one always is. And um, so the fundamentals were okay in comparison to, say, the financial crisis, when the fundamentals were all went bad quite quickly. And coming out of the financial crisis of 2008, that was a hard slog. That was a long hard slog and the impacts of that were very unevenly distributed across different groups in the population, different parts of the economy, as they always are. So there is a potential, because the fundamentals are kind of okay, there's a potential for maybe the bounce back to be relatively quick, but it depends on all sorts of different things. It depends on government policy about lockdown, it depends on policies around furloughing, um, it depends on what happens in other places that we sell goods and products to and how how they bounce back. So, yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, I don't think we're going to go back to how it was anytime soon, anytime quickly. We're going to, our behaviour will change. Uh, our behaviour will change in positive ways. I mean, the whole thing about we know that remote working for certain types of people in certain types of jobs can be highly productive. Not for everyone. Not everybody can do that. But for certain parts of the economy, actually, it's highly productive. So we know there are different ways of doing certain things, different ways of working in certain industries. And that will probably be beneficial in the long run. But you know, some of the sectors that have faced the, the biggest challenges, and construction, food and drink, the pubs, the clubs, the venues, the cultural sector, you know, it's going, it's difficult to see how they can come back very quickly because we will be either told to remain quite distant from each other and from these places, or we will just have a, a kind of an inbuilt kind of wariness and aversion now to these things. So I think, um, you know, I think it's, I don't know if it's going to be a long, hard slog, but there's definitely a bit of a slog to get through, I think, really. Well, Jim, look, thank you very much for your thoughts. Thank you very much for your uh, your time today. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks very much. Cheers, Jim. And you, Tony, all the best. So Jim's experience there really highlights the fact that uh, the world of recruitment has changed. It's moved from the traditional 
apply to a job um, through a paper or indeed actually even online now um, to really trying to leverage your network, grow your network and leverage your network if you want to make the right career move and, and move to the next level. Again, if this is something that's interesting to you, you will be interested, I hope, in my course, Career Move Secrets, uh, the full course, which is at www.careermovesecrets.com. And of course, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to listen to more like it, please subscribe um, because there will be more Career Move podcasts coming very soon. Thank you.